Uh, my name is Josh Millen. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and if you're new, I want to welcome you to Center Church, and I want to welcome you to 2020. Uh, I love this time of the year because we as a church, and I personally, am really passionate about seeing people's lives changed. Um, I'm really passionate about seeing people encounter the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and seeing their lives changed by it. And so because of that, I love this time of the year because many of us are already thinking about making changes. So if that's you, if you're here and you're maybe back in church for the first time or you're checking us out for the first time, we're glad you're here. And I want you to know two things about us. The first is that we're a pretty young church, so we're not even a year old yet. Our one-year birthday is actually in two weeks. So if you hate today, at least come back for that, okay, because it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to do birthday cake and baptisms after our service. So we're a pretty young church. So if you're new to church, you're going to fit right in here, okay, because we're, sort of, uh, we're all sort of new around here. And then the second thing is, is what I mentioned earlier. We are passionate about seeing lives changed by the gospel. That is the bullseye for us as a church. That is what gets us up in the morning. And like I said, it's why I love this time of the year. Um, it's why I love stories like my friend H.D. Jacobs. So H.D. has become a good friend of mine. And this very Sunday, last year in 2019, he attended our church for the very first time. It's the first time that he had attended any church for many years. And that day, that Sunday morning in our service, he gave his life to Christ. So today is my friend H.D.'s spiritual birthday. And this is what I love most. I had breakfast with H.D. the day after his birthday this year. It was a couple months later. And he, I didn't like prompt him. He just said this to me. He's smiling at me right now from the audience. He just said this to me. He said, you know, Josh, this is the first time in years that I woke up the day after my birthday and I wasn't hungover. Right? That is life change, ladies and gentlemen. That is what we are about H.D. has experienced the power of God in his life this year, and he's growing, and he's learning a ton, and he has a long way to go, just like all of us. But if you want to know what we are about in a nutshell, it is about that. It is about people's lives being radically transformed by the power of the gospel. So if that intrigues you for your own life, or you want to be a part of a church that is into that, then we are a great place to check out, and I'm really, really glad you're here. Okay, so if you have a Bible, you can take it out, and you can uh, open up or type to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 1 verses 1 through 6 today. And we're going to start a new sermon series this month for the month of January called The Pursuit of Happiness. The Pursuit of Happiness. And what we're going to do is over four weeks, we're going to look at what God has to say about happiness. You see, we all want to be happy. We all want to live a life that is fundamentally happy. And yet for many of us, it eludes our pursuit. We go after it in a bunch of different ways, and yet we can't seem to land it. We can't seem to make it stick. But the book of Psalms is one of the most ancient and most famous collections of literature in the entire world. And one of its major themes is happiness. One of its major question is, questions is, is happiness possible? Is deep fundamental happiness possible? And if so, how do I pursue it? How do I achieve it? Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician, philosopher, and theologian who a couple of hundred years ago wrote this. All men seek happiness. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. This is the motive of every action of every man. So what Pascal was saying is that we are all pursuing happiness in one way or another by one means or another. But maybe, uh, just maybe, a 17th century French philosopher isn't really your speed. Um, so I consulted one of the great philosophers of our age, which of course is Google. Okay, And I typed into the Google search bar, how can I be, and then I waited to see what would the autocomplete be. You know how Google will autocomplete your question with its results? And, 
And here it is. I think we have it up behind me. If not, I can tell it to you. How can I be? The number one result was how can I be sure? The number two result was how can I be happy? The number three result was how can I be rich? So I guess those are the three things that, uh, that people on Google are interested in. And as I did some more research, I learned that how can I be happy is one of the most popular search requests on Google. It is one of the most searched questions every year on Google, and it produces six billion web results. Six billion web results to the search, how can I be happy? So what I think that shows us is that the pursuit of happiness that Blaise Pascal talked about a couple hundred years ago is still something that is really important to us today. But here's the interesting thing, and here's, I find this really fascinating. How we think about happiness changes as we age. How we think about happiness, fundamental happiness, changes as we age. Pastor Tim Keller, who is a Presbyterian minister in New York City, points out that when you're young, you think happiness is a given. You think happiness is a given. As long as you work hard and you don't make any big, massive mistakes, you'll end up happy. But once you get older, that starts to change. Either you got the thing that you thought would make you happy, you got the job or the family or the kids or the house or the car or whatever, and it didn't make you happy, or you didn't get the thing, and now you've assumed that you've missed out, that you've missed your chance at happiness. Keller sums all this up by quipping, when you're young, you think happiness is inevitable, but as you grow older, you start to wonder if happiness is unattainable. When you're young, you think that happiness is inevitable, but as you grow older, you start to wonder if happiness is unattainable. So which is it? Is it inevitable? Is it just coming for all of us? Or is it unattainable and we'll never be happy? Well, this is where the Psalms are really helpful. Because the Psalms transcend our cultural moment, and they impart to us divine wisdom. They impart to us what God has to say about happiness. And here's basically what the Psalms teach us about the pursuit of happiness. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. We'll come back to this throughout the series. Here it is. Happiness is possible, but it must be sought in the right way. Happiness is possible, but it must be sought in the right way. And the reason that many of us, that many people never achieve the fundamental abiding happiness that they desire is because they pursue it in the wrong way. And I would be as bold to say that if this morning you're here and you're not experiencing the deep fundamental happiness that you long for, it is very possible that it's because you are pursuing it in the wrong way. So over the next four weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to learn God's way of pursuing happiness revealed to us in the book of Psalms. God's way of pursuing happiness revealed to us in the book of Psalms. And today we're going to start with the basics. We're going to start with the very first Psalm in the book of Psalms. And Psalm chapter 1 is all about two ways. Two ways to pursue happiness or blessedness. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Understanding these two approaches will help you understand your own pursuit of happiness and will maybe help you diagnose some areas of your life that you're not happy and why. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk us through Psalm chapter 1, sort of pointing some things out as we go, and then I'm going to draw out those two ways, okay? So look at verse 1 of Psalm chapter 1 with me. It says this, blessed is the man, blessed is the man. Now it's important to understand that Psalm 1 functions as an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. So it sets the tone for all of the Psalms. Every commentator will tell you that, that it is like an author's introduction or preamble to this book of wisdom. So it's significant that the very first word in the first Psalm is the word blessed. You see, blessed is the Hebrew word ashray, which literally means happy. 
It is the Hebrew word ashray, which literally means happy. But don't think happy like I got a good parking space happy, right? Think deep abiding happiness, a happiness that is strong and that is unassailable by the circumstances of your life. You might call it fundamental happiness. That's the phrase that I'll use throughout this sermon. This psalm is all about how you can achieve fundamental happiness in your life. Blessed is the man. And it's worth noting that that word blessed comes up again and again in the book of Psalms. That exact word comes up 26 times in the book of Psalms. You see, sometimes people think that Christianity is all about kind of being a buzzkill, being a, a, a joy stealer in your life and trying to get you into heaven. But did you know that throughout the Bible, there are 2,500 passages that speak about joy, happiness, gladness, delight, and celebration? 2,500 passages that speak about those themes. Jesus said himself in John 10.10 this, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. So what does all of that mean? Why do I tell you that? Because it means this. God is very interested in you being deeply and profoundly happy. God is very interested in you being deeply and profoundly happy. I'm not just saying that because it's, you know, the first Sunday of January, and I think you'll want to hear that. That is what it says in the Bible. The book of Psalms is all about how is it that you achieve the truly blessed life. And you'll notice if you look back at verse 1 that it says, blessed is the man. So is this like only for guys? Right? Like, is there a separate set of principles for women? Right? Well, no, that word in Hebrew just means mankind, humanity. So blessed is the man refers to all of us. So what this psalm is saying is that fundamental happiness is possible for all of us, regardless of your age or stage of life, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're thin or heavy, black or white, single, married, or married again. What this psalm is saying is that it is possible for you, regardless of your stage, regardless of what's happened to you or what hasn't happened, it is possible for you to be fundamentally blessed, for you to be fundamentally happy. Let's keep going. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So why is this psalm so interested at first in what the blessed man doesn't do? Because it's going to highlight two different paths. Two different ways of pursuing blessedness. And it's going to be very clear that these two ways are different and that they lead to different destinations. So he says the blessed man does not do these things. He doesn't walk in this path. He walks in this path. Verse 2, so what does the blessed man do? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the blessed man doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Instead, he delights in God's law. He doesn't just know God's law, but he loves it and cherishes it. Verse 3, that blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked, however, are not so, but are like shaft that the wind drives away. So, this psalm is saying that the blessed man is like a tree that's planted by a river that bears fruit year after year after year. By contrast, the wicked man is like a piece of shaft. So you may not know what shaft is. So when you have wheat seed, around the wheat seed is shaft, sort of like a kernel. And it's inedible, and it's, and it's really kind of pointless. And so to eat the wheat seed, you have to separate the shaft. So what you would do is you'd put it all in a bowl on a windy day, and you'd just throw it in the air. And the shaft is so light that the wind would blow the shaft away and the wheat seed would fall back down to the bowl and you would have something that you could use. 
What this psalmist is saying is that the wicked person, unlike the tree that is deeply rooted, the wicked person is like shaft, just blown about by every gust of wind without any sort of foundation, unfruitful and easily blown away. Verse 5, therefore, as a result of this, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the blessed are like rooted trees that bear fruit year after year and in death are welcomed into God's presence. Whereas the wicked are blown about in life and unable to stand in the judgment. Regardless of your spiritual background, whether you are a skeptic or a seeker or a seasoned saint, right? we all want to be fundamentally happy. We all want to be on that first path, right? The way of the righteous. But why is it so elusive for us? Why is that fundamental happiness that we long for so elusive? Because I think that we're often, sometimes subconsciously, pursuing it in the wrong ways without even realizing it. We're walking in the way of the wicked, and it's not producing what we want it to produce. The good news is that this psalm helps us understand those two ways. This psalm helps us understand the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And so by understanding this psalm, it will help you understand which path that you're walking on and if you need to make a change to be able to make that change. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight the way of the wicked first, what this psalm teaches us about the way of the wicked, and then second, what it teaches us about the way of the righteous, okay? So number one, the way of the wicked. This psalm teaches us two things about how the wicked person seeks happiness. They seek happiness in his two ways, but they can never deliver. Here's the first way. Letter A, you ready? The wicked pursues happiness through self-expression. The wicked pursues happiness through self-expression. We see this in the first two verses. The first two verses tell us that a righteous person delights in God's law, but a wicked person does not. So in this psalm, all the word wicked means, hear me, all the word wicked means is someone who lives according to their own rules or desires. In this psalm, I know when we hear wicked, we think like some terrible crime that someone commits. But in this psalm, all it means is someone who lives according to their own rules or desires. Their own rules or desires. Rather than looking to God's law, the wicked person looks within his own heart to determine what is right and then pursues it. The, the practice of looking within, looking within ourselves to determine values and behaviors often called self-expression. And self-expression is a strong value of modern American culture. From classrooms to movies to self-help books, we are encouraged to discover what our heart's desire is and then to pursue it at all costs. We're called to throw off every authority structure or moral system that impedes our pursuit of self-expression. And just to be clear, there are some beautiful and God-glorifying things about self-expression. God has created each one of us uniquely. He's given us each unique passions and gifts. And when we tap into those things and we use them to glorify him, it is wonderful and beautiful and holy. But when we set up self-expression as the final law, when we set up our own hearts as the final authority in our lives and we pursue happiness by looking within, it always ends in disaster. Self-expression leads to a dead end. Now, there are some obviously destructive ways that this happens, right? So maybe you know of a situation where a husband decided to leave his family, his wife, and his kids because, man, in his heart, he was in love with his secretary, right? That's a pretty obvious form of, of destructive behavior. Or maybe when a CEO embezzles money because he thinks he's above the law. He thinks in his heart, hey, I deserve this. I've worked hard. Nobody knows how hard I work. Nobody knows how much I sacrifice. I deserve this. I don't, the rules don't apply to me. 
Those are pretty obvious sort of public ways that self-expression leads to destruction. But there are some less obvious ways. Some less obvious ways that this probably works out in most of our lives. Why do we overeat when God calls us to self-control? Why do we overspend when God calls us to contentment? Why do we overwork when God calls us to rest? Because in our heart, we think that those things will give us the satisfaction and happiness that we long for. We think that our hearts know better than God does. When God says, hey, self-control is for your good, we say, no, I'm not sure. I'm going to have another slice. When we say, hey, contentment is for your good, we say, no, I need to get that new SUV. I'm going I'm to pick up another payment. We say, rest is for your good. We say, yeah, but I've got to get this done. In those moments, we look within and we decide we think we know what's best and we throw off the restraints that God has called us to. Man, our culture tells us, it tells you to follow your heart, but when you do, you never find the fundamental happiness that you were created for. You could write this down. Self-expression makes a promise that it can't keep. Self-expression makes a promise that it can't keep. Throwing off authority and throwing off restraint is invigorating for a while. It's what many of us did our freshman year of college. Right? But eventually, I got some last there. Now I know who actually did it. Right? But it can't deliver. It just can't deliver. The thrill wears off. Right? Reality sets in and we start to shrivel up. C.S. Lewis compared it to the fish that decides he wants to be free by escaping the confines of water. So he flops out of the ocean. True, he is now free of the confines of water, but is he happy? No, because the fish was made for water. In the same way, you and I were made for God. So ask yourself, has following your heart made you fundamentally happy? Does your life feel like the end of a Disney movie? Right? If the answer is no, then it's worth considering what this psalm has to say. If you've been pursuing life in one direction and it's not giving you the result that you desire, then it just is reasonable to say, maybe I'm pursuing the wrong path and I need to consider making a change. The first way that the wicked pursues happiness is through self-expression, but friends, that's a dead end. Here's the second way that the wicked pursues happiness. Letter B, the wicked pursues happiness in circumstances. The wicked pursues happiness in circumstances. We see this in verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that a blessed man is like a tree that is planted next to a river, but a wicked man is like shaft that is blown away by the wind. Now, what in the world does that mean for us? Well, it means that a blessed person is subject to seasons, just like the tree. The tree goes through winter and goes through the heat of summer. It's not always blossoming. It's not always bearing fruit. It bears fruit year after year in the season to bear fruit. It doesn't mean that when you, when you get on the path of righteousness, you're always in the summertime. But it means that regardless of your circumstances, you don't wither and you're able to bear fruit when it's time to bear fruit. Now, how can a tree planted by a river do that? It's because it's drawing its life force not from its surroundings and its seasons, but from the river. It has roots that go down deep into a source of water and a source of life that is not impacted by the winter, is not impacted by the summer. You see, by contrast, chaff has no roots. It's light. It's momentary. The smallest gust of wind sends it tumbling away. Unfortunately, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us are more like chaff than we are like a rooted tree because we seek happiness in our circumstances. I mean, can't we just be honest? Isn't that true for most of us? Right? When circumstances are good, you're good. Right? When the kids are behaving and things at work are going well, you're happy. 
But when work is unfulfilling, or your numbers are down, or your kids are acting crazy because it was a 17-day-long Christmas break, why in the world would that ever happen? Anyway, a little insight into our house right now. Um, right? But when work's unfulfilling, kids are hard, man, you're down. Or your body's hurting again, your back's hurting again, you're like, man, when is this gonna, when is this gonna end? You're down, you're irritated, you're anxious, you're depressed. I was really convicted as I prepared for this message because I realized that over the last year, my mood was often a direct result of our Sunday attendance. So good attendance, good mood. Bad attendance, bad mood. But that is a foolish way to pursue happiness because church attendance goes in seasons just like anything else. December is a low attendance month. January is a high attendance month. I was convicted that even though I want to say I'm on the way of the righteous, even though I want to say, no, my my happiness comes from Christ, what I'm seeing in my life, the evidence of my life is no, and at least in this area, I was connecting my happiness to circumstances. If we seek happiness in our circumstances, we're just bound to fail because we all know that life is not always summertime, right? We go through good times and bad times. Sometimes things go well. Sometimes things go hard. Sometimes it feels like you've been in the winter for a very long time. If our fundamental happiness is tied to our circumstances, at best, we are doomed to ride an emotional roller coaster. And at worst, we're going to sink into a deep depression because the winter seems to drag on and on. We all know that no matter how good you are at controlling your life and controlling your environments, You will never succeed at removing all disappointment, pain, and suffering from your life. It's just not possible. If we look for happiness in our circumstances, we're going to be like shaft that is blown away when things go badly. Unable to consistently bear fruit that glorifies God and makes a difference in the world. Right? The wicked pursues happiness in their circumstances and in self-expression, but neither of them can deliver. So where can we find fundamental happiness? Well, this psalm tells us in the way of the righteous. That's number two, the way of the righteous. The way of the righteous is defined by two approaches, this psalm says. Two ways that the righteous pursues happiness. Here's letter A. The righteous pursues happiness with God's people. The the righteous pursues happiness with God's people. We see this in verses 1 and 2 again. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that the happy man doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Well, what does all that mean? Well, to walk in someone's counsel means to listen to their advice. It means to think like they think. Well, to stand in the way of sinners, the way in the Bible refers to your behavior, to your actions. So a righteous man doesn't behave like the wicked. The choices you make and the priorities you set are different from the world. Finally, to sit in the seat of scoffers refers to your community. You see, in Jewish society, men sat with men, women sat with women, tax collectors sat with tax collectors. That's just what who you sat with was your fundamental community, your closest relationships. So in summary, what this psalm is telling us is that a happy person won't believe like, behave like, or belong with the wicked. A happy person won't believe like, behave like, or belong with the wicked. Instead, he will believe like, behave like, and belong with the righteous, with God's people. The assembly of the righteous is what it says in verse 5 and 6. And to press this point just a little bit further, to help you see it in the psalm, consider this. Nine times in just six verses, this psalm refers to the wicked and the righteous by various terms. Nine times in six verses. In every single instance, those terms are plural. 
In every single instance, those terms are plural. Why? Because you and I are shaped by our community. You and I are profoundly shaped by the people that we belong to, by the relationships that we invest in. I've told you before that your friends are the future you. Your friends are the future you. Proverbs 13.20 says it this way, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Your friends are the future you. Look around at your five closest relationships, and you're likely to become more like those people in the next year. That's just reality, right? We are shaped by the community that we keep. And so Psalm 1 would say the blessed man understands that, and the blessed man makes his community among God's people. So if fundamental fundamental happiness has eluded you to this point, if you are longing for more of it, then this psalm encourages you to prioritize deep involvement with the local church, to prioritize deep involvement with God's people. If you want to become more fundamentally happy in 2020, get more connected to God's people. That's what that, I didn't say that. That's what the psalm says. Here's two easy ways for you to do that. Here's number one. Start serving here on a Sunday morning. Start serving here on a Sunday morning. Open doors for people so that when people come in and they've got their kids and they have, you know, you open the door and and make them feel welcome. Park cars, help people know where to park. Brew coffee, disciple and invest into our kids. Serve here on Sunday mornings. Number two, join one of our missional communities. Join one of our missional communities that meets during the week. Get to know people. Be invested in and invest in others. Now, you might be thinking, well, sure, you're the pastor. Of course you're going to say that, right? That's fair. But what's interesting is that even our culture understands this. In his book, Give and Take, Adam Grant, who's a professor at the Wharton Business School in Pennsylvania, cites multiple studies that show that those who volunteer at least two hours a week are happier and more satisfied with their lives than those who don't. That's not me. That's Adam Grant, professor at Wharton Business School, doing thorough research in his book. And he says, hey, people who volunteer at least two hours a week are happier and more satisfied with their lives than those who don't. Another article published on Forbes.com just a few months ago was titled, How to Be Happy. So here's this this writer, Forbes.com, he's saying to his readers, hey, if you want to be more happy, here's what you should do. And building friendships with people who will help you grow was one of his keys to being happier. It was one of his keys. That's Forbes. If you you don't anything about Forbes, they're not exactly theologically aligned with us, okay? Like, that's just, it's just a magazine. It's just a writer. So what does all this mean? Well, it means that modern psychology is starting to unearth what the Bible has been saying for thousands of years. Modern psychology is starting to unearth what the Bible has been saying for thousands of years, that you and I were created for community, and we were created to serve. We were created for community, and we were created to serve. Now, why is that? Let's go a little theological for a second. Because we were created in the image of God. The book of Genesis tells us that when God created man and woman, unlike any other creature, he made us in his image. What that means is that we are not God, but there are aspects of us that reflect God. And when you understand that, you you understand why community and service is so fundamental to your existence. God is communal by nature. He exists as one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He has always existed in perfect community. And God is giving by nature. He sent his only son to the world so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And when Jesus came in Mark 10, 45, he said, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
You see, you will never experience the fundamental happiness that you long for as long as you are a lone ranger or primarily looking out for number one. If you are a lone ranger and if you look out for number one, you will protect your comforts and you will sacrifice your happiness. You will protect your comforts and you will sacrifice your happiness. So getting more deeply involved in a church, whether it's this one or another one, is one of the very best things that you can do for your own happiness in 2020. And if you want to do that at this church, if you want to learn how to do that, you can get all the information about how to do that here by visiting our Next Steps tent. Right outside, the bagels will be in front of you. It's right to the right. It says Next Steps. There will be people there to help you. We make the process of getting involved here as painless as possible. And here's the thing. If you're having trouble getting connected or you're confused, just email me. I think my email is going to be up here. We got it? Uh, no. Okay. Josh at centerseville.com. Really easy, right? Josh at centerseville.com. You can directly email me, okay? That's how much I want this for you. I want you to get connected because it is a major step toward your happiness in 2020. So the righteous pursues happiness with God's people. That's the first thing we learn. Here's the second thing we learn, letter B. The righteous pursues happiness in the gospel. The righteous pursues happiness in the gospel. In verse 2, we learn that instead of acting like the wicked, a righteous person delights in God's law, and he meditates on it day and night. And then verses 3 through 6 work out the implications of delighting in God's law using if-then illustrations, okay? This is kind of how the passage works. If you delight in God's law, then you'll be fruitful in life, like that tree. If you delight in God's law, then you'll be confident in death. But this is confusing because when most of us read God's law, we usually think the place in the Bible with all the rules, right? Isn't that usually what people like? When you read God's law, you think the place in the Bible with all the rules. So you're like, all right, so if I want to be happy, I'm just supposed to read the book of Leviticus over and over again this year. Is that what you're saying, Josh? Right? No, the people laughing are the ones who have actually tried to read the book of Leviticus. There's only nine of us. Um, That's not what it means. The phrase law of the Lord does include, hear me, it does include the laws and the rules of the Bible, but it also includes the overarching message of the Bible, what we call the gospel. Okay? It does include the laws and the rules, but it also includes the overarching message, the gospel. Think of the the phrase law of the Lord um, like a painting of a landscape. Okay, like a painting of a landscape. Maybe the mountains are in the background, and there's a rolling hill, and there's a farmhouse, and there's a pond. Okay, so it's a painting of a landscape. The rules are part of the landscape. The law of the Lord, in that sense, are like the pond. They are part of the landscape. They're an important part of the landscape. But to properly understand the pond, you need to zoom out and see the pond in context of the whole landscape. So to properly understand the pond and its place in relation to all the other aspects of the law of the Lord, you need to zoom out. So to rightly understand the rules of the Bible, you have to understand them in context of the overall message of the Bible, which is the gospel. You can write this down if you're taking notes. A blessed person delights in the rules of the Bible because he has been changed by the message of the Bible. Following me? A blessed person delights in the rules of the Bible because he has been changed by the message of the Bible. So what is the message of the Bible? Right? What is the core message of Christianity? It's what we call the gospel. It's what we call the gospel. And I'll summarize it for you here briefly. The first part is that God is holy. God is righteous. And he created us to worship him partly by keeping his law, by living in the way that he calls us to live. But unfortunately, even the best of us has failed to honor God or give him the praise that he deserves. 
And as a result, we all are deserving of condemnation. We are deserving of punishment. Every single person who has ever lived. But God loves us. And he is full of steadfast love and mercy and grace. He is wonderful and kind and good. And so, because he loved us and because he is good, he sent Jesus to the world to perfectly keep the law for us. To keep the law perfectly in all the ways that we should have but haven't. Then after living a perfect life of righteousness, a perfect life of holiness, a truly blessed life, do you know what happened to Jesus? He died on a cross. Why? To take our punishment. To take the penalty that we deserve for breaking God's law. Jesus paid the penalty on the cross that you and I earned with our disobedience. And then three days later, he resurrected from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was. He wasn't just some religious crock. He is truly the son of God. Historically, he resurrected from the dead, proving that he is who he says he is. And now, as a result, through repentance and faith, you can be forgiven of your sins and you can be welcomed into relationship with God. That is the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus got the punishment you deserve so that through faith you can get the blessing that he deserves. That is the fundamental message of the Bible, my friends. The one overarching message that all 66 books are proclaiming. Substitution. Jesus in your place. And if you believe and if you meditate on that message, it will change how you relate to the rules of the Bible. Well, how so? Well, you'll no longer see the rules as a judge who is condemning you for failing, but as a tutor who is helping you become who God created you to be. Not as a judge who condemns you, because now you can say, I'm not righteous because of my own actions. I'm righteous because of the actions of Jesus. So the law no longer condemns you. Instead, it instructs you, and it shapes you, and it helps you become who God created you to be. In the law, you will see the beauty of God's character and holiness, and you'll begin to delight in the law of the Lord, just like the blessed man in the Psalms. But that will never happen, hear me, that will never happen if you are still trying to justify yourself, if you're still trying to prove yourself by keeping all the rules or being good enough. If your hope when you die is you're going to stand before God and say, I did more good than bad, it's not going to end well for you. And if that's how you feel, you're probably never going to love the book of Leviticus. Because you'd be like, this is weird, and I don't know how to do any of this, and I'm constantly failing. No one likes a person who is constantly telling them that they don't measure up. Your attitude towards God's law is a pretty good indicator of your heart posture before him. Do you see God's law as a delight or as a burden? Do you see God's law as a delight or as a burden? You see, if you delight in God's law, the only reason is because you've experienced the gospel. You are in Christ. But if you see see God's law as a burden, as an unfortunate part of the Bible that you try to avoid and you get mad when I talk about, then you've probably never received Christ. You're probably still trying to justify yourself, and so the law feels like condemnation to you. It feels like wrath. When you receive Jesus, it changes how you relate to God's law. That's what the psalm is saying. The blessed man delights in God's law. Why? Because he is, he is standing before God in the righteousness of Christ and not in his own. And that will start to produce fundamental happiness in your life. Well, how does that work? Well, think about the tree illustration in verse 3 and 4. We all want to be like that tree, don't we? We want to have deep roots. We don't want to be tossed about by the seasons of life. We want to bear fruit. We want to make a difference in this world. We want to glorify God. That's what fruit means in a biblical sense, that your life makes a difference. 
that your life matters. And meditating on the gospel empowers you to do that. It changes you from shaft that is blown around and makes no difference in anyone's life because it's not fruitful into a rooted tree that really does make a difference in the community and really does make a difference around the world. Well, how does it work? Well, let's say you're in a season of blessing. Let's say your, your life is spring and summer right now. You're making good money. Your relationships are strong. Your kids are doing well. You're doing great in school or grad school. You just got a killer job opportunity. It is summer and springtime in your life. The gospel in that moment calls you to serve others, to use your blessings to be a blessing to those around you. It reminds you that you aren't in this season because you're an awesome tree. You're in this season because you're planted next to a gracious river. Look, if you're in a good season of life, it's not because you're an awesome tree. Sorry. It's because you're planted next to a gracious river. And when you remember that, you treat your blessings differently. You don't gather them all up and say they're mine and my time is mine and my marriage is mine and my kids are mine. I'm just going to do everything that I want to do and have all the experiences that we want to have. You say, no, this is a gift that God has given me. I'm only here in this spring season because my roots in the river got me through last winter. And so now I'm going to help people that are right now living like shaft. I'm going to say, don't do that. Come over here. Let me teach you how to put roots down into this river. You see, the gospel changes how you think about your seasons of blessing. It also changes how you think about your seasons of suffering. When you're in a season of suffering or dryness, it feels like the winter to you. It feels like a drought of the summer. The gospel teaches you endurance. It teaches you endurance because it reminds you that the most important things in your life cannot be affected by your circumstances. The most important things in your life cannot be affected by your circumstances. No matter how long the winter is in your life, no matter how hot the drought, they simply cannot affect your identity as an adopted child of God and co-heir with Christ. There is nothing that the seasons can do to your fundamental identity if you are in Christ. You see, meditating on the truth of the gospel will enable you to bear up under hard circumstances. The gospel will make you generous with your blessings and steadfast in your sufferings. When you put deep roots into the truth of the gospel, it will make you generous with your blessings and it will make you steadfast in your sufferings. When you meditate on the gospel, when you meditate on God's word and you delight in it, it changes your perspective about life. It changes your perspective about life. Psalm 1 is an overview of two ways to pursue happiness. It's an overview of two ways to pursue happiness. And over the next several weeks, what we're going to get to do is we're going to get to double-click on a couple of other really important questions. Double-click on questions like, man, is, is, God, is God really as satisfying as you say he is? Double-click on questions of like, what, when my, what about when my life is really hard? What about when my circumstances are really dire? Come back. We're going to talk more about that this January. Invite friends of yours. We'll have cards that you can use to invite people that have got the dates and have got the location. But the big question, the big question that Psalm 1 presses upon us is this. Don't miss this. This is the big question of the whole psalm. Ready? Which way are you on? Which way are you on? Because this psalm is explicit. There are two ways. The way of the righteous leads to eternal life, but the way of the wicked leads to eternal death. That's what verse 5 and 6 teaches. Two different ways that lead to very different destinations. God wants you on the path of life. That's why he sent Jesus to do everything necessary for your salvation. But you have to accept that gift. 
You have to choose to leave the path of the wicked and join the path of the righteous. Maybe this morning you're like my friend HD. And you've been walking on the path of the wicked and it has disappointed you and left you hurting. Remember, wicked doesn't mean you're committing crimes. Wicked means you're calling the shots in your own life. And in the Bible, you're either wicked and you're calling the shots in your own life or you're saved and Jesus is calling the shots in your life. There's two ways. Maybe this morning you're like my friend HD and you've walked this path, you've called the shots, you've been the boss of your own life, you looked in your heart, you've gone after what you've desired and you keep coming up short. That fundamental abiding happiness continues to elude you. That's good news. The way of the righteous is open to you. No matter your background, no matter what 2019 was like for you, 2020 can be different. 2020 can be the year that your marriage is healed. 2020 can be the year that you break your addiction. 2020 can be the year that your life takes a major turn towards fundamental happiness. But hear me, it all starts with your relationship with God. It all depends, friend, on what path you are on. So I want to give you an opportunity this morning. In fact, I would be remiss not to, having preached this psalm, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to respond personally to the gospel message. I don't do this every single time I preach, but I do it because Jesus did it. Anytime that you see Jesus interacting with somebody in the gospels, do you know what he's doing? He's calling them to make a personal decision about him. Who do you say that I am? Am I just another religious teacher, another option out there, or am I the Lord of life? Am I the rightful king of your life? And so I want to give you an opportunity to personally respond to this good news. So if everybody would close your eyes with me. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever personally received Jesus Christ? Not did you grow up in the church, or are you a good person, or are you a religious person, or are you a spiritual person? Have you ever personally received Jesus Christ into your life and recognized him as Lord? Have you left the way of the wicked and joined the way of the righteous? If not, I want to tell you how you can do that. Whether you do that here this morning or in the car or next week, the first thing you do is you admit that you're a sinner who needs to be saved. Friend, you are not a mistaker who needs a life coach. You've chosen to be on the path of wickedness. You've chosen to call the, call the shots in your own life. You are spiritually sick and need to be healed, spiritually dead, and you need to be brought to life. And if in this moment you can say, yes, Josh, I see that about myself. I'm, I'm finally able to admit that to myself. That is the beginning of faith. Because the second thing that you do is you believe in Jesus Christ. And here's what believing means. I believe even though I don't understand everything. I don't understand everything. But I look to the historical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and I believe that that is enough for my salvation. That if I place my faith in Jesus, he cleanses me of my sins, and he gives me his righteousness. And finally, you simply confess that out loud. The shortest confession in the Bible is only three words, Jesus is Lord. 
You give Jesus your best and your worst, your sin and yourself, your regrets and your remorse. And if you do that, if you do that this morning or in the car or next week, he will give you salvation and the spirit. It's the great exchange. You can do that right now in this moment. You can do it after the service with our prayer team. You can do it in the car. You can do it next week. But don't let this moment pass by without responding. Your 2020 can be fundamentally changed this morning. So I'm just going to give you a moment because our band continues to just kind of play behind me to pray. And if you need to do that, then do that today. head still bowed, eyes closed. If you're in this room and you received Christ today, you made it your own for the first time, would you just put your hand in the air so I can pray for you? That's you. Just put your hand in the air. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you that you want happiness for us. God, I thank you for all those who are turning from the way of wickedness and putting their faith you and joining the path of the righteous. As we walk through the series, would you help us to understand more fully what it means to live a truly blessed life, a life according to your design? And would you give us courage to say no, to say no to the world, to say no to the ways we have been pursuing happiness, and instead to say yes to you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for all this in your son's name.